0: Hello, and welcome to the Ashurst Corporate Crime and Investigations podcast series. This is a series that will explore various aspects of corporate crime and investigations. And as part of this series, we're going to bring you a selection of mini series, which will cover uh, different topics that uh, come up for us day to day, bribery and corruption, money laundering, fraud, sanctions, um, and the sort of issues that come up for us in investigations to name a few. My name is Ruby Hamid, I co-lead Ashurst's Global Corporate Crime Team and today I'm delighted to be joined by Nathan Wilmot and Liz Parkin. Nathan is a Partner and Investigations Specialist uh, here in London and Liz is an employment lawyer, Uh, she's a Senior Associate in our London team and experienced in employment disputes. And in today's episode, which is part of our Investigations mini-series, we will be exploring some of the trends and developments in whistleblowing which are keeping us busy at the moment. Nathan I'm going to kick off with a question for you if I may Um, is whistleblowing on the rise are we seeing more of it across the sectors in which our clients operate
1: thanks very much Ruby yes I think it's a it's a definite yes to that I think over the last perhaps four or five years we've seen um, a a real significant increase in the number of whistleblowers, both within organizations and then to External authorities. We saw during lockdown um, some rather strange um it had rather strange impact on whistleblowers. In in some respects, because there was no access to your normal managers to raise issues and feel that issues were going to be able to be addressed through that normal means, that um individuals felt in some cases, it was more necessary to go through more formal processes and raise issues through internal whistleblowing processes or indeed going to, to external bodies. Um, but I think also a, a sort of countervailing factor is is that many of the issues that might give rise to whistleblowers um, simply were, um, were not present because people were, were working from home and therefore not having the same interaction. So we saw some really sort of a change in behavior in terms of whistleblowing during that period. But already post-lockdown, we're seeing um, an uptick. We're seeing significant numbers of internal whistleblowers. We're seeing um, from the certainly from the data that are being um, published by authorities, we've seen that the FCA over the last six months in 2021 uh, received 568 external whistleblowers um, covering a range of issues. Um, but I think more importantly, boards of, um, of large corporates now see the importance of dealing with whistleblowers as um, really important to the, the culture and, and proper management of the business. It's become a, an issue that is discussed much more at board level and there's the realization that it's important for, for large corporates to be thoroughly looking at um, issues of whistleblowing to understand what, what's behind whistleblowers and to make sure that they're investigated thoroughly and the root causes are properly addressed within, within the organization. And I think that's a, a permanent feature now. Um, and so that will have a real impact on not just the number of whistleblowers, but the seriousness with which um, whistleblowing um, actions are taken by corporates.
0: Yeah, I think, Nathan, we've seen um, a a rise in our corporate clients uh, of whistleblowing champions on the board, um, and and I think a familiarity by non-executive directors of the importance of whistleblowing and how to deal with it. Um, So non-executive directors who are experienced at and ready to set up independent investigation subcommittees and... Uh, look after whistleblowing issues in a in, in a really careful way and certainly in my experience that's a, a relatively recent trend there.
1: I think that's right and I think they it's now seen as something that's really critical to the proper governance of corporates and creating a proper culture in which if people raise issues that they, they know that they will be investigated properly, the issues will be addressed properly and that individuals will be commended for raising issues rather than prejudiced as a result of raising issues.
2: That ties in then with, with the uptick I think we've seen over the past sort of five or six years in the employment sphere as well, not just in terms of it being a, a nuisance tactic when there's there's a dispute but actually just generally this being a common theme with people becoming more aware of, of obligations and rights in the workplace.
0: What do you think Liz are um, changes in law or regulation, which have helped to fuel this, and we've talked about the, the change in the style of corporate governance here. But is is that driven by anything in particular in the legislative framework?
2: Well, we've got um, at the moment the EU whistleblowing directive. Um, this was supposed to have sort of been in place at the end of December 2021. Over the next sort of year, maybe year and a half, we're going to see a real um, visibility on whistleblowing, it coming to the forefront of our, of our clients that are operating in the European sphere um, and how that then interacts on the global front with, with clients that have already got, say, a whistleblowing policy in the UK um, and clients in the US and maybe in Australia and how that sort of all interacts on this, this global basis. That's really interesting. Liz, uh, it's,
0: it, it, what, what though is the impact then for UK companies post-Brexit why why are they interested in what an EU directive is telling them
2: well I think the EU directive itself is very prescriptive so on the UK side we don't really have any set deadlines although clients may or may not have a written policy this EU directive actually prescribes what you need to do you need a written process in place you need to have a dedicated person or department to actually deal with a whistleblowing complaint. Um, that person has to be impartial. You've got seven days to acknowledge a whistleblowing complaint, and then generally a three month period to actually go back to, to that whistleblower. And trying to fit that in with what is probably a slightly more flexible, for example, UK process is, is, is gonna be a consideration for businesses. We were also then faced with the fact that if you've got a global presence, you're going to have local jurisdictions that are going to have probably gold-plated whistleblowing rules that are more prescriptive. Trying for sort of to take a, a global approach to that is actually going to be quite difficult. And quite a lot of our clients are now looking at whether they they need a regional approach to things or whether they can sort of try and be a bit more cohesive in the way that they approach whistleblowing.
0: That's really interesting because that we have seen a trend, haven't we, in,
2: in recent
0: years of Uh, companies trying to look for ways to harmonise their investigation approaches across their sectors, across their business lines, across their jurisdictions, so that there's some consistency about the way they're dealt with. But if what we're looking at now across Europe is a range of differing requirements with differing timescales, then it it may be that it's no longer one size fits all.
2: Yeah, and I think it's going to be quite difficult to sort of take from a practical perspective that one size fits all approach it might be that some clients are happy to do that and that they're happy to go with the most prescriptive approach but um it's at least from a UK perspective you probably don't want to tie yourself to some of those quite tight deadlines. Nathan we we
0: spotted that there are some proposed changes to the law in France about whistleblowing which have been quite interesting to the team here and and in particular, an encouragement to whistleblowers to report directly to authorities as opposed to reporting uh, to the company yeah. that they are employed by or they're interested in. Um, it doesn't sound to me as though companies would welcome that.
1: I think companies ought to be encouraging their employees to raise issues in whatever the way their employees feel most comfortable, um, whether that's to line management, whether that's through more formal internal processes or going externally to the uh, relevant authorities, but I think the preference for firms will be to have a a culture where people are comfortable raising things internally in order that the the corporate is able to understand the issue, investigate itself, to feel um, confident that it understands what has driven those concerns, and then take appropriate um, remedial action, um, whether in relation to individuals or more broadly in terms of Risk management systems um, or other processes within the within the firm. I think that whenever you, an individual goes externally, um, particularly to a regulatory body, you have that that concern that the regulator is going to take control of it and conduct its own investigation, and then the, the the firm will be very much on the back foot. There's also the dynamic sometimes of whistleblowers where they um, have the threat, they report the issue internally and have the threat of then going to the external regulator as a way sometimes of trying to secure a positive outcome for the individual. Uh, That's normally uh, a very thin threat in that the firms, one of the first things the firm tends to do will be to speak to the regulator themselves, so that they're the ones telling the regulator, rather than hearing it from a whistleblower. But, um, but yeah, to answer your question, I think the, the strong preference for firms. Um, is that they retain control over a matter by investigating it internally. We've also seen um, with some clients that their regulators have increased their their scrutiny of the entity, um, their supervisory scrutiny, because of the number of external whistleblowers that they've seen, which has caused them to be concerned about um, the culture within the organization. We've also seen the regulators um, telling firms that they're gonna be conducting section 166, skilled person reviews in relation to financial institutions where they send a professional body in to examine how they deal with whistleblowing issues. Uh, and that's obviously something that um, is to be avoided if at all possible um, for a financial services firm.
0: And it's a very intrusive exercise, isn't it, being under scrutiny yeah. in that, those sort of circumstances?
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that although within the financial services sector, the the rules on whistleblowing only apply to a relatively small community, there's an encouragement that the rules should be applied more broadly uh, as guidance. Uh, And the reality is we see that the regulators are treating that guidance as if it's binding rules on all firms. Um, So encouraging firms to have whistleblowing champions to make sure they have proper processes in place, um, that although their rules don't prescribe that, in practice, that's something that's very much expected across the board.
0: Liz, have you had experiences where whistleblowers have been directly to authorities and, and what sort of issues have come up there for you?
2: Yeah, it's, a, it's one of those ones, as you say, it's, a, it's often a, a threat held, um, and particularly in an employment relationship. We had quite a nasty one last year that ran for a long time, and that was a, a global client in a heavily regulated sector And despite the fact that it was traditionally sort of an employment executive financial dispute on an exit, that person, because of their intrinsic knowledge of the workings of the business, decided to then use the whistleblowing regime in the UK to raise multiple issues that fed into FDA concerns in the USA, uh, modern slavery issues across Europe, and then some really quite nasty tactics used to particularly um, try and target some of the finance and, and executive team, pulling the FCA and potentially other regulators into it. Um, and I think the difficulty there was is, despite the fact that often is the way that, you know, we were quite comfortable that there was probably no real threat there. it the time and the cost taken to actually go and look at that and look at it properly and thoroughly In and of itself, you know, was it was a massive cost and nuisance to the client. Um, And yeah, it's it's. I think the risk of going to the external regulators, particularly with with cross border issues as well, becomes a a massive um, issue when particularly when you're trying to settle matters from our perspective. Lots of people with differing views, all in the discussion at once. Lots of different departments. Um, you end up with privilege issues, with documents going in and out of different departments, legal compliance, um, and yeah, and then things like data privacy issues as well, with information having to go, particularly things like the United States. So,
0: we've talked to, uh, about the legal structure around whistleblowing, um, and and what we see a lot of are the investigations that are triggered by whistleblowing. Um, I'm interested in your views on why companies investigate whistleblowing? Why, why does it matter to do this properly? Why is it an important part of, of the way that, that companies do business? Um, Nathan, do you want to go first?
1: Yeah, um, I guess there are a number of different layers as to why it, why it is so important. Um, obviously at a base level, if there are concerns that the, um, the company is not adhering to the law, um, or has other um, ethical issues that, that those are issues that are properly investigated, identified and ac- action taken appropriately in order to deal with those issues. More broadly though, I think as we, as we discussed earlier, I think the, the cultural aspects, the, the compliance culture within an organization, um, encouraging a positive speak up, listen up approach um, is really cemented by having a good whistleblowing regime. Um, That goes to encouraging people to raise issues where they see them. It goes to knowing that where people do raise issues, they will be uh, properly looked at and appropriate action taken. And it it furthermore goes to the the confidence of an organization in um, wanting to be doing the right thing, want to be seen to be doing the right thing, and encouraging and empowering its employees to, um, to be stakeholders in that, in wherever they see something that they have concerns about, they have the confidence to raise it, and to know that that'll be dealt with positively um, rather than negatively. So I think it's, it's very important um, to those cultural aspects, as well as the, the more specific concern of wanting to identify wrongdoing.
0: Mm. And Liz, from your perspective, thinking about the employees and the employer and the relationship between the two, presumably it's a key part of, of showing uh, responsibility and, and safeguarding the welfare of employees.
2: Yeah, and going from what Nathan said, that, that kind of well-being concept of, of having a, a, a thorough, thriving um, workplace, you know, the well-being uh, of the employees is, is paramount. And there are two elements to this, really, both in the fact that, yes, there's legal protection for for whistleblowers across various uh, countries, and particularly in the UK. And and that in itself triggers a requirement to actually think about how you're going to deal with this, dealing with things properly, not allowing them to fester. But fundamentally, actually, if there are issues being raised that are being raised by employees about their workplace, about colleagues, about processes, about, you know, situations that have happened and concerns then the employers actually owe a duty of care to their employees to provide a safe workplace to protect their well-being and that feeds into the duty of of trust and confidence um, to actually ensure that that the business is is properly listening to its employees considering those and, and not sort of turning a blind eye to issues because if you do ignore them and things aren't dealt with early on what often happens then is you end up with grievances, disciplinaries, or people feeling that they, they've not heard, that they will formally whistleblow, that they'll go externally to the regulators and in worst case scenario, sometimes to the press. And you don't really want to leave those things to, to sort of get out there and getting ahead of It's really important. When you say getting ahead of
0: it, Liz, do you mean a company getting its arms around a whistleblowing issue quickly, yeah. getting to the meat of it? and and getting a resolution for everyone involved as rapidly as possible
2: yeah we're talking about sort of that triaging kind of concept of identify a complaint work out what it is is this a compliance issue is this a personal issue and then making sure that that gets you know fed into the right channels internally and it's actioned promptly and that these things don't don't fundamentally drag on i'm going to wrap up now
0: with a question for you both about what your whistleblowing trend is at the moment if you had to pick out one trend which you're seeing come up again and again what would that be
1: so um so my whistleblowing trend i think is um one where we're going to see um certainly within the financial services sector a much closer attention by the regulators to Um, to the processes that firms have in place, real um, detailed scrutiny of um, the the processes, but also the the approach to how they're applied, how issues are investigated, whether people feel comfortable um, in terms of how they've been dealt with. But linked with that, the question of how those who've raised issues with the regulator can then be kept informed, updated about um, the outcome of that, of that investigation, the the financial regulators are very constrained by what they can say in terms of investigations to those that have have raised issues through whistleblowers. And there's a recognition that if people feel that issues are not being addressed properly, then they won't, they'll stop going to the regulators, and therefore a need to be able to go back to the the complainant to the whistleblower, and to give them a précis of the steps that the regulator has taken, and they haven't been able to do that in the past, but I think that they are they are looking quite actively for routes to be able to do that, and so I think that may be a, a trend or a feature um, in the in the short to medium term.
0: I'm going to chip in with mine, and then um, Liz, you, you can you can wrap up um, the session. Um, what I've been seeing a lot of in the economic downturn that is uh, around for most industries at the moment, cost of living increase and financial pressure is a focus on the way that contracts are modeled in terms of their costs and profit. And we've seen whistleblowing increase in the area around financial modeling and financial forecasting. Um, And I think an eagerness or a willingness on the part of whistleblowers to come forward with issues around accounting. Uh, an audit, and because, particularly for listed companies, there is so much um, scrutiny of annual accounts and audit exercises, and for anybody who's listed, there's the market disclosure risk. Um, Each of those could be impacted by uh, a financial modelling exercise which is conducted inappropriately or or which is manipulated improperly. Uh, We've seen quite a few of those so far, and and my prediction is, as the economic downturn continues, uh, I think we'll see more of that.
2: So, albeit I never want to say this word, um, COVID is probably going to be um, one of the elements that we continue to see coming through into this year. Um, we saw an enormous increase in health and safety-based whistleblowing issues, as you'd expect, with both home working and providing a safe workplace over the last sort of 18 months to two years. That is going to continue, A, because there are delays in the tribunal processes, but also more from our flow, um because of homeworking, safety, well-being, all those kind of sort of core concepts of, of being a responsible employer and some of these different hybrid um, working arrangements now that businesses have got in place bring with them concerns, concerns about management, concerns about visibility, communication and, and health and safety. And I think the second one that we're probably going to continue to see is, is this building on the diversity side. Out of the back of the Me Too movement, the real focus seems to be, um, particularly early this year, on boards and senior management and this sort of real push for diversity and really looking inwards as to whether businesses are actually diverse and inclusive. And, and if it's not, sort of more of those whistleblowing issues being raised in terms of actually what are we doing on a on a fundamental basis as opposed to specific allegations
0: yeah that sounds like it, that's got all the hallmarks of a, a topic that's going to to run and run mm. um, liz um nathan thank you very much indeed um, for your wisdom and thoughts and contribution today that that's where we're going to leave it for this podcast Um, Thank you very much for joining me on this episode. If any of our listeners would like to get in touch with Nathan, Liz or me, then our details are on the ASHA's website. Uh, which is Ashurst.com. And if you'd like to learn more, do look out for other podcasts in the series. We are going to be talking about managing employee welfare during investigations. We're going to be talking about how to scope investigations. We're going to be talking about when is an investigation an investigation. Uh, And we're going to be looking at some of the risks and best practices in specific sectors financial services, um, uh, mining, oil and gas infrastructure to name but a few. So um, do keep tuning in um, by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your other favourite podcast platform Um, and do keep the conversation going uh, by leaving us a rating or a review. Until then, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you next time.